This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. I want to talk a little bit about churches. Yeah, what an unusual topic, right? No, no. What I'm talking about is the state of churches concerning the COVID-19 shutdowns. We have tried to stay on top of this issue throughout the course of the shutdowns with all of these churches being told in various locations that they're not allowed to meet, most notably California. As you know, I had interviewed Netta Higuera just a few days ago talking about these churches that are suing California over the singing ban. I can't imagine anything dumber, can you? You can't sing. Unless you're a leftist protester out on the streets, then knock yourselves out. That's fine. Just wear a mask, protest all you want, be out in the streets. You can do that, but you just can't sing if you're a Christian. Okay. Well, so now we have these Calvary chapels suing, but there's more stuff going on. And I wanted to talk about this because there's a church in Pasadena defying Governor Gavin Newsom and his orders to shut down. This is Harvest Rock Church. This is reported uh, by CBS. And this is Pastor Che An, who delivered a message to the governor being sued by a group of churches, as they point out. And he said, I want us to pray right now that we will win the court case that they're embarking on. No one is above the Constitution. No one is above the law. As a pastor, I believe we've been essential for 2,000 years. Well said, Pastor. Additionally, counties that remain on the state's county monitoring list for three consecutive days also have to shut down more types of businesses and activities, including gyms, places of worship, salons, and malls. Los Angeles County, which is where Pasadena is located, is affected by this additional measure. And Liberty Council is now dealing with this, suing Newsom on behalf of Harvest Rock Church and also Harvest International Ministry. Now, here's an update on that particular case, because this is something that just came down this week, and they were looking for an injunction. And a federal judge this week turned down this bid by Harvest Church Ministries for an immediate halt to this order from Governor Newsom preventing various group worship activities. Because tell you something else, it isn't just shutting down church services, indoor church services, and it isn't just a singing ban, even though there is no jurisdiction for the state to be able to enforce that. So we've got lawsuits pertaining to those particular issues. But as Matt Staver from Liberty Council has pointed out, this is also an order that affects Harvest Rock Church's life groups. Now, if you have small groups in your church, you know what that's all about. You can guess what that's all about. Those are home Bible studies and fellowship groups. Those two are now prohibited under Governor Newsom's recent orders. How does this guy have the authority to do this? Now, I know how some of these court cases have gone before in the state of California. You've had liberal judges saying, well, in the name of public health, he can pretty much do anything he wants. What about the hypocrisy, though? What about the hypocrisy of this guy? 
Does anybody care about the hypocrisy? Well, we care about the hypocrisy. How in the world can you claim it's constitutional when you're not enforcing the same sorts of restrictions on other sorts of gatherings? For example, this is what Liberty Council points out. On May 31st, Governor Newsom released an official statement praising and encouraging the protesters in California to continue to gather in large numbers despite the flagrant violation of his orders. This is what he said. We have seen millions of people lift up their voices in anger rightfully outraged. Every person who has raised their voice should be heard. And he continued, I want to thank all those who exercise their right to protest peacefully. Excuse me? Uh, Wasn't there a coronavirus order in effect? Yeah. You know, some people are more equal than others. Some protesters are more equal than others. Let's put it that way. Then the next day, or two days later, Governor Newsom held a press conference and expressed appreciation and gratitude for the thousands of protesters gathering in the streets of California in violation of his own orders and told them, keep doing it. June 5th, four days after that, Governor Newsom not only continued his support for mass protests that continually disregard his orders, but he said new standards should be applied for such protests. Got that? Protesters have the right not to be harassed, he said. Protesters have the right to protest peacefully. Protesters have the right to do so without being arrested. The next day, thousands of protesters assembled in Sacramento, right outside the governor's office, in violation of the governor's orders, and no citations or threats were made against them. And finally, June 7th, approximately 100,000 protesters, rioters, and looters were permitted to gather in Los Angeles in close proximity without any threat of criminal sanction for violating the governor's orders. See how that goes? Now, there are many Christians who recognize the disparities here, and it's not just in California that that has been the case, but California has gotten the most press over this, rightly so. It's odd to me that you don't see more churches fighting back on this. It's just weird to me. Now, I understand when you have these churches filing lawsuits, whatever the decision is will affect other churches in most cases, unless it's a very narrowly decided case that only applies to the church in question. But generally speaking, I think a lot of Christians are sitting back and saying, okay, well, we don't have to do this because these other churches are willing to take the lead on these lawsuits. I just don't understand why more people are not saying, forget you, Governor Newsom, forget you. You don't have the constitutional right to tell us to shut down, period. You know, you look at the COVID case mortality rate, and how in the world can you even conclude that this is still a pandemic by global standards? Now, I want to be careful in saying that because the reason I make that comment is the CDC recently announced we've had the 12th straight week of death rate decline. And they said a couple of weeks ago, we're to the level almost where it's not even an epidemic anymore. You have a 99, over a 99% survival rate. So tell me why we're all acting like this is the Black Plague, not to mention all these mask mandates, which are ridiculous. The masks don't work, as we've talked before with Dr. Andrew Boston, the epidemiologist and clinical trialist. There's no scientific evidence that these masks work. Why are we going along with all this? This is my question. Are we so scared of standing up for anything that actually might cost us something that we're just going to sit there and take anything? Because right now, I think when you couple this stuff with the fact that you have the Pastor Andy Stanley contingent saying, yeah, we're just going to close down church for the rest of the year. Nobody asked you to close it down for the rest of the year. Why would you preemptively close down your church for the rest of the year? That's bizarre. The message you're sending is we, we really couldn't care less if we show up at our own churches. You know, Think about how this is going to play down the road. 
I was thinking about this this morning. Think how about, really, think about how this will play when we are going back in time years from now and explaining 2020 to our posterity. And you have, for example, this is this is something that is relevant to this. You have a lot of people talking about how the churches reacted during the Holocaust. Where were the Christians? Well, you had the confessing church and the confessing church was standing up and opposing Hitler, but you had a whole lot of people who went along with it. So that's been discussed to death. That was a highly, highly horrendous and unique situation during the period of time when Adolf Hitler was heading up Germany and the Holocaust took place. We all know that millions of people were killed. We're not in that situation. But what will people say about Christians in 20, 20 years from now? You had all these unconstitutional orders. You know what your First Amendment says. And you had churches doing the right thing. They're trying to follow the system and they're going through the courts and they're trying to get judges to rule justly. And in some cases, in the California cases, they haven't been ruling justly. They haven't been. They just haven't been. And what do you do? You just sit there and take it. We're not going to have church forever. Right now, the churches in California are closed down indefinitely. There's no time frame for when the churches will open back up. And I am of the, of the opinion, like so many other people have said, that this is a political move. The left wants the churches closed right now. They want them closed. Why? You have an election coming up. Who is the biggest voting block for Trump? Evangelicals. Of course they want churches closed. Churches are a problem. So the leftists are out in the streets. The leftists are doing what they want to do in the streets of our cities. You have chaos and looting and rioting and unrest. And the Christians are nowhere. What are we going to tell our posterity about where we were at a moment like this? Well, we're on Zoom. And I'm not saying for people who really are at high risk and are vulnerable to, you know, really bad ramifications if they were to catch COVID-19, that they shouldn't stay home. But why should the rest of the Christians who want to go to church have to stay home? And I really want the church to consider this. I really do. I think all of us as Christians really have to consider how important it is that we obey the Lord in assembling ourselves together safely. You can put on your mask if you want and socially distance and all that. But if the protesters can get together, there's no reason that the church shouldn't. We're going to come back. You're listening to Janet Mufford today. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. 
This is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with Bible League International on Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia. Our shared goal is to send 1,200 Bibles from the Janet Mefford listening family to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Asia. In this region of the world, Bibles are scarce for many reasons, including the remoteness of where people live. In the Philippines, church planters and evangelists trained by using resources from Bible League International travel many hours by car, boat, and by foot to lead Bible studies in remote places of the country. Let's send them the Bibles they need in order to share Christ and to see lives transformed for His glory. You can join other Janet Mefford listeners by sending a Bible for $5 or $15 for $75. Just call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Just look for Fan the Flame, Bibles for Asia. And God bless you for caring. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, this is an incredible story. A former Air Force Academy professor was the victim of cancel culture this week. Jay Lorenzen was scheduled to speak at a JAG reservist's training session, but the Military Religious Freedom Foundation put a stop to that by raising concerns about his Christian faith. And that complaint from this militant group prompted the U.S. Marine Corps to cancel the session reportedly only 64 minutes after the foundation complained. We're going to get some more details now from Jeremy Dice, who is senior counsel for First Liberty Institute, which is representing a JAG reservist opposing the cancellation. Jeremy, so glad to have you with us. How are you? I'm well. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, sounds like Mikey Weinstein is at it again. Give us a little background on this session and this professor. This is outrageous what happened here. Yeah, look, the uh the, the the judge advocates here really wanted to just simply have a, uh, you know, they have their two weeks of training every single year as reservists, and, and part of that training this year was going to study the Battle of Gettysburg, a rather influential battle in the history of, of, of the military, and especially the United States military. And uh, they're going to have Mr. Lorenzen give that, uh, that, that discussion. Uh, they, I think, wanted maybe to do that at Gettysburg, but COVID-19 has, you know, interrupted everything for everybody. <laughs> and so they resorted to having to do that on, uh, you know, in a virtual environment. But, uh, you know, the, the, the study was to study military tactics, lessons of leadership, military history, all things that we would expect our, our Marines who are training to be warriors to be able to study during this time. Uh, and yet a single complaint, just because in this person's biography it lists him as being associated with Campus Crusade for Christ, that was enough for the United States Marine Corps to cancel the speaker. What? That's crazy. I mean, just because he had an association with Campus Crusade for Christ, that was enough to kick him off the docket? That's ridiculous. That's exactly what happened. Now, that was not honestly put forward by Mr. Weinstein over at uh, Military Religious Freedom Foundation, of course, but... Uh, that's what it comes down to, is uh, that uh, the MRFF claimed that uh, his uh, religious affiliation was a violation, and I'm quoting now uh, of Mikey's letter to or email to the, the Marine Corps, it was in a violation of the no establishment clause of the Constitution. I'm not sure where that is in the Constitution, but I've not seen it in the First Amendment anyways. And so to cancel someone based on nothing more than their personal beliefs and religious affiliation is absolutely flabbergasting to me. Well, he wasn't even going to be addressing Christianity. It's not like Weinstein could point to the fact that he was going to do some kind of theological training session. This was about Gettysburg. So why can't you be a Christian and have an association with a Christian ministry and talk about Gettysburg? What? Why is that even relevant here? 
Well, according to Mr. Weinstein, that was exactly what the problem was, is that because he's religious, he's going to proselytize these <laughs> Marine Corps uh, judge advocates. Now, keep in mind, this is like 120 reservists who are the Marine Corps' attorneys. Do you think that the Marine Corps is really going to run the risk of violating the Establishment Clause in front of 120 Marine Corps attorneys? No. I hardly think so. But, look, the bottom line is this. Our Marine Corps is designed to train warriors for battle, to win our nation's wars on land, air, or sea, as the song goes, right? Yeah. Instead, they have instead chosen to follow the cancel culture. And if they're going to be willing to cancel a speaker because of his personal religious affiliation, we're not even a hop, skip, and a jump away from the possibility of canceling individual Marines and other service members for having a personal religious belief and affiliation. And that's why this is such an incredibly important and big deal right now. We ought not to be disqualifying speakers, but especially not speakers who have a record of not only 20-plus years of service in the United States Air Force, having taught for 12 years at the United States Air Force Academy, and, and, and having graduated from Tufts University, uh, we should never cancel them from teaching our, our, uh, our Marine Corps uh, leadership. No, of course not. And, and it's kind of bizarre, too, to complain preemptively. It isn't as if somebody came in, proselytized, and then somebody came back and said, hey, he proselytized, he shouldn't have been doing that. This was, he's a Christian, I complain about this, and you ought to cancel this. Now, what I find really interesting, Jeremy, is Mikey came out with this press release, and it said the fact that the Marine leaders called back on my personal cell phone 64 minutes later and simply said, done, following up with that, confirming email, makes it quite clear that the senior leadership in Washington agreed with us 100%. 64 minutes. Do we know if the Marine leadership even called Mr. Lawrenson and discussed this with him other than to say you're out? I mean, 64 minutes, that's kind of lightning fast. I believe every word that Mikey says there, and that ought to make all of us very scared. The reality is that the deputy judge advocate to the commandant of the Marine Corps, which is pretty high up there in the Pentagon, has the personal cell phone of Mikey Weinstein. And when Mikey calls and says, you must cancel, he takes his orders from Mikey Weinstein to cancel a speaker at a Marine Corps reservist training event. I think it ought to make every single American call for some sort of discipline to this judge advocate in the Pentagon, this colonel who has done it. Now, thankfully, we've got people like Senator Ted Cruz and Congressman Doug Collins who are, well, shall we say, just fit to be tied about the situation. And I suspect that that colonel who made that call to Mikey's personal cell phone number probably is going to have a very bad day in the very near future. Well, uh, and that's incredible. It. Look, yeah. No, I yeah, agree this, with you, this, this Jeremy. Never I think should have happened. No, it shouldn't have happened. And it is good that you have, you know, Congressman and, and Senator Ted Cruz getting involved with this. You know, talk a little bit about your involvement here because you are representing, as I understand, this JAG reservist who's really upset about that. What was the reaction from some of the reservists who were on the side of Mr. Lawrence and when they understood what had happened here? Well, they were furious in a couple of directions. Number one, they were really looking forward to this training. Uh, you know, it was something, it, it's, an, it's an interesting battle to consider, to learn and think through tactics. Don't forget, reservists do a day job, right? They're there two weeks a year to do their Marine Corps duty. And, and so they're kind of looking forward to talking about the thing that made the Marines in the first place, the military and how to win the nation's wars. Instead, they find that to be canceled. And so they get to, they lose out on that opportunity. And what is it replaced with? Well, of course, it's replaced with a long and very awkward and at times heated discussion about systemic racism 
and other race issues within the United States Marine Corps. Not something that I think any of them wanted to sit through that day, save except for the one person who apparently complained about Mr. Lorenzen even being there. Right. Well, talk a little bit too, Jeremy, because I know you will have some thoughts on this. The outsized influence that this man, Mikey Weinstein, apparently has on the military, because there have been so many instances where Weinstein makes a phone call and all of a sudden somebody's life is in upheaval over something like this. This is just the latest example of it. But to what extent has Mikey Weinstein's activism really impacted military hostility or unfairness toward Christians? Well, they, they uh, for one thing, they, they simply take his word at the complaint. There was no attempt to, to think through the base. Are you telling me that the reference to someone's religious affiliation in their speaker's bio is sufficient to violate the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, to, mm-hmm. to establish a religion on behalf of the United States government? I hardly think so. And if we're at that level, if the Marine Corps actually thinks that reference to someone's personal religious beliefs or affiliation is sufficient to violate the First Amendment, all of our freedoms are in grave jeopardy. But apparently, because they have this buddy-buddy chummy relationship with MRFF, at least some of them do, uh, you know, they're, they're willing to simply take, take his word for it. And what happens is that they get themselves caught in a really awkward situation. Well, let's just state it honestly. They get themselves caught in Mikey Weinstein's fabrication of the truth. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened here. If you read the story at FoxNews.com, you quickly see that he tried to trump up this charge, and it really fell on its face as something much less than it actually was. Yeah. The session itself then was completely canceled. They're just not going to have any session with Gettysburg at all. They're not going to learn about what Mr. Lawrenson was going to teach them. There's no replacement. No, the only replacement was a, a very uh, unfortunate discussion. This is already taking place now. Uh, a, a long discussion on systemic racism within the United States Marine Corps in sort of a BLM kind of a way. Uh, and, and so it, yeah. my client tells me that uh, those who were very much looking forward to it, which was the grand majority of the, the men and women who had gathered, were gravely disappointed and, and frankly, a little bit bored with the, the uh, discussion that ensued from there. No, oh, I can imagine. Yeah, I wasn't sure if they had any sort of Gettysburg, you know, session at all, even as a part of that systemic racism beatdown that they apparently got instead. But it's just terrible. So well, how do you move forward here? What What is the plan for these reservists and, and for being able to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Well, I, I think that's now in the hands of Senator Cruz and Doug Collins, Congressman Doug Collins. Uh, and I understand that they are, well, I, I know that some uh, liaisons from the Marine Corps visited with uh, Congressman Collins this week. I spoke this week with some staff members in Senator Cruz's office. Um, I, I suspect that the colonel who made this decision at the Pentagon is, is going to receive an earful and perhaps even be called to provide some congressional testimony Good. to explain why they are willing to surrender to the demands of Mikey Weinstein and not keep their eyes on America's enemies, foreign and domestic, uh, instead. So uh, my hope is that this serves as a very necessary wake-up call to the United States Marine Corps that their job is to prepare our men and women for battle, not cave to the cancel culture. Yeah, absolutely. How do you think this ought to have been handled? Clearly, it's very disconcerting to hear that Weinstein can just pick up the phone and within a little more than an hour, this colonel would respond and say, yeah, Don, he's out. No way. How should the military have dealt with this complaint in a way that would have been fair and would have been constitutional to Mr. Lawrenson? Look, I I think it's very simple. Uh, They received a phone call from Mr. Weinstein and the response is, let me look at the biography. That's not a violation. Thank you. Goodbye. Easy. That's the end of it. (laughs) It's pretty simple. Uh, Yes, this person is allowed in the United States of America 
to be a religious individual and to not only do that, but to participate in an available public benefit. That's just the thing. From Article 6 of the Constitution, which refuses to require a, a uh, religious test for office, through cases like Trinity Lutheran, which says that, that religious individuals and organizations can participate in public benefits just the same as their secular counterparts can, through a number of, of uh, DOD policies and regulations, all of them agree. You cannot keep people who are religious off of the dais, out of participation, and away from view, and, and, and cancel their speeches simply because they happen to profess a religious belief and associate with a religious organization. Yeah. What the Marine Corps here has done is absolutely unconscionable. Absolutely. FirstLiberty.org, Jeremy Dice. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Always good to have you here. Thank you. All right. Take care. We'll be back. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-W-O-R-D, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Was the universe an accident and human life along with it? We know what the Bible says, but what does science actually say on the subject? In fact, the latest scientific evidence paints a very different picture than the evolutionary story many of us may have heard in school. So we're going to talk about it today with Eric Anderson. He is an attorney, an entrepreneur, software engineering executive, design theorist, and contributing author on evolution and intelligent design and uncommon descent. And he's also a contributor to the book we're going to discuss today called Evolution and Intelligent Design in a Nutshell. Eric, great to have you with us. How are you? Thank you so much, Janet. Glad to be here. Thank you. So this is interesting to me because we have all been fed this line that, in fact, science is very, very different and science tells a different tale about the universe and human life as you may have understood it in Sunday school. But what is going on scientifically showing that the universe and mankind actually are not an accident? Exactly. So there's a lot of research that's been going on, particularly over the last, I would say, 20, 30 years as we have gotten more acquainted with what's going on in biology, with the complexity of the cell, and not just the complexity, but the integrated functionality, uh, information in DNA, the molecular machines, the regulatory networks, all of these kinds of things that speak to intelligent activity rather than unguided, undirected natural process. And so there's been a real resurgence in the last, like I say, 20 or 30 years of the idea of intelligent design in nature, both in cosmology and in particular in biology. And we talk about both of these aspects in our book. Right, exactly. Now, there are a lot of different things that are discussed in the book pertaining to things like the Big Bang and a fine-tuned universe. But of those discoveries that have been coming out over the last several decades, what are some of the highlights in terms of backing up the idea and the notion of intelligent design? Sure. So in the first chapter, we do talk about cosmology. We talk about the Big Bang and some of the discoveries that indicate that the universe uh, had a beginning. There's good evidence for that. We talk a little bit about the multiverse idea that's being thrown around, which is really an attempt in many ways to get around the concept of fine-tuning that we see in our universe, where the laws and constants of physics and chemistry are really balanced on the razor's edge, uh, we might say, to permit life 
Um, they're not sufficient for life. We still have to look to biology and the design that exists in biology, but you start with the cosmological argument at that level. And then in the other chapters, we talk about information in biology. We talk about self-replication, which is kind of a new aspect that I'm putting in that, that hasn't been discussed a lot. And then probably some of your listeners are familiar with um, some of the fossil record issues and some of the things around irreducible complexity that Mike Behe has done such a great job of talking about. And we've got some chapters on that as well. Oh, yeah, there's so much good stuff in here. And as you mentioned, you write a chapter in this book, which is really great. You say in your chapter that for many of the leading origin of life researchers, this idea of self-replication, as you describe it, is the holy grail. Now, can you explain for people what exactly are you talking about when you're discussing this idea of self-replication? Right. So what's happened in, uh, let me back up just a little bit. When you talk to somebody about evolution sometimes and you're asking questions about it and you bring up the origin of life, often you will get a comment along the lines of, well, we don't have to deal with that. That's a separate concept from evolution. Evolution only starts once we have a living organism that's on the earth. earth. And indeed, Darwin didn't address the origin of life in his great classic, The Origin of Species. He just said, okay, assume that we have a living organism. Now what happens during the history of life? Uh, we, we happen to disagree with that story as well, but I'm trying to bring it back to the very beginning and say, wait a minute, how do we get that first organism? And what's happened, uh, Janet, in the scientific research is a little bit different than what's been happening in the debate. In the scientific research, um, certainly the last several years, and I would even say over the last hundred years, there's been a lot of effort to push back this first initial beginning of how we could get life started, what kickstarts life. And so... Everybody recognizes, and by everybody I mean even the most ardent materialist recognizes that we're not going to get a living cell to arise by chance on the early earth. It's just not going to happen. So the question then is, is there something simpler? Is there something that can kickstart that process? And scientists have looked at uh, metabolism. They've looked at you know, simple membranes. They've looked at DNA and RNA. And right now, the current probably most popular idea that's getting a lot of research is the idea of a simple self-replicator, even a single self-replicating molecule. And so the idea is, if we can get a single self-replicating molecule to arise on the earlier, then we can depend on Darwinian evolution to build the first organism. Hmm. And so what's going on in the scientific research is very clear right now. Not only is Darwinian evolution relevant to the origin of life, but origin of life researchers are absolutely depending on Darwinian evolution to build this first living organism if they, if they can only get something like a simple self-replicating molecule on the earlier. Well, now this is interesting. So if they were to discover a self-replicating molecule, is the idea that that's how the Darwinian scheme works? In other words, that's how you could have the replication of life and, and the evolution of life throughout all of these centuries without God being involved or without any intelligent design being involved? Absolutely, yes. The idea is if we can get a self-replicator, then the magic of Darwinian evolution kicks in. We have mutation and selection. And just like the story goes that we can build new organisms, let's say during the Cambrian explosion, you know, something that Steve Myers talked a lot about. Yeah. You have organism A, and through the magic of uh, you know mutation and selection, we build organism B through, on up through Z. Just in that same way, the idea is if I can get a self-replicating molecule, then through Darwinian mutation selection, I will be able to build things like metabolism, build things like uh, you know information-rich molecules, the translation and transcription system, all of the things that are required for even the simplest cell. 
Well, isn't this a matter, though, of discovery? Because when you talk about getting a self-replicating molecule, how do you go about getting one of those? I'm not even sure what the process would involve. Oh, there's a tremendous amount of work going on in the lab right now. Um, and what they're focusing on is typically, and you could have you could have something like a protein, which is built up of amino acids, but typically what people are focusing on is RNA. And the reason for that is because RNA, as we know, has the ability to store information in biology. We see that happening along with DNA. But it also has the ability to act as an enzyme, meaning it can help certain reactions take place. And so the idea was, hey, this is awesome. We've now got a two-for-one. Not only can RNA store some information, which is one of the big problems for origin of life, but it can also do something. It can also, you know, catalyze a reaction. And so the effort now is to create what's called a polynucleotide, which is a, you know, it's a molecule with a number of these nucleotides strung together. And if we can get one of these things put together that somehow replicates itself, then boom, you know, Darwinian evolution can kick in and, for, mo- for the most part, we'll, we'll congratulate ourselves and say that we've solved the uh, mystery of the origin of life. Yeah, except, I, I mean, I'm not a scientist, obviously, but my question would be, yeah, but, but how'd the molecule get there? Well, sure. <laughs> sure, you could, you could push back even further, and, and that kind of backs up to the cosmological argument and the fine-tuning of physics and chemistry um, argument that we talked a little bit about in Chapter 1 as to how you even get the kind of universe that you need to have life where it can happen anyway. Um, but there's some really serious problems with the idea of a self-replicating molecule on the early Earth, and, and that's, that's where the story starts. I mean, back to your question about why is this a big issue. There are lots of good arguments around information, around molecular machines, but in the mind of the materialist, you have to remember, self-replication is the key. Okay, that's why I call it the Holy Grail, because once I get that, ah, the other stuff's you know, it's going to happen by evolution. I don't have to worry about how I build an information-bearing molecule like DNA. I don't have to worry about how I build molecular machines. Hmm. Darwinian evolution is going to take care of that for me. And that's nonsense. But in the mind of the materialist, if, if I can get that simple self-replicator on the early Earth, boom, I'm, I'm practically there. Yeah, yeah. Although, like we were saying just a moment ago, if you can't explain where matter came in the first place, you're never going to be able to go back far enough unless you are willing to engage with the idea that perhaps there was a creator on some level. Yes, that's that's correct. And that, that deals with some of the issues, again, on, on the cosmological side. You know, the multiverse has been thrown out as a potential way to try to deal with um, issues related to the fine-tuning of the constants of, of chemistry and physics. But that's it's really not a good argument, and it, and it fails on a number of levels. So Yeah, exactly, because w- w- one of the things that you talk about in your chapter are some of the discoveries that were made that proved no organism could arise all at once on the early Earth by chance, and that's one of the things that I want to get into a little bit more, as well as examine this idea for self-replication and why there's so many problems with the idea in the first place. Eric Anderson with us. We're going to come back talking about the new book, Evolution and Intelligent Design, in a nutshell. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Kurt Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. 
Actor Kirk Cameron supports preborn. My four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn. Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Mefford today to support the ministry of preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. One ultrasound is just $28 and every gift helps. To donate, please call now 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Well, I sure appreciate this book, Evolution and Intelligent Design, in a nutshell, because most of us are not scientists, and we don't know what the research is right now pertaining to the scientific evidence that actually points toward intelligent design. We're discussing this with Eric Anderson, who is an attorney. He's also a software engineering executive, and he is also a contributing author on evolution and intelligent design at Uncommon Descent. Eric, we were talking about this idea that self-replication is something that a lot of these Darwinian evolutionists are working hard on. That is, if you can get evidence that a molecule can self-replicate, then that would solve a lot of problems for the evolutionists. But what are some of the discoveries that have been made proving that an organism couldn't arise all at once on the early Earth by chance? What, what sorts of evidence can you present that would give us you know, information that's important to know over this issue of self-replication? Right. So back clear, I would go back clear to the late 1800s. You know, if you start sort of mid-1800s when Darwin is around, there was an idea that the organism was relatively simple in the sense that at the cellular level. There was a concept called a protoplasm. Sometimes you hear the cell referred to as a blob of protoplasm or a sack of protoplasm, whatever that may be. But the idea was that it was relatively simple. And so if you had that viewpoint, you can understand why somebody might think, well, it's relatively easy just to take some of this and add more and add more, and you can kind of shape it. You imagine like clay that you're shaping into some shape, and you throw a little more clay, and you could shape it into something else. And indeed, Darwin referred to organisms as plastic in the origin. He wasn't talking about you know the material that we make children's toys out of, but he was talking about the fact that the organism was malleable, it was moldable, it could be shaped by the environment. But in the late 1800s, Scientists started to, uh, because of better equipment and better capabilities, started to understand that the cell had 
particular components in it. It wasn't just a homogenous blob of protoplasm. It had different things that were going on. And then early in the 1900s, there was more recognition. And so over the last 100 years, there's just been a tremendous growth in our knowledge of what the cell consists of, how it functions, all of the different machinery that goes on, all of the information processing that occurs in the cell. And so when you look at that trying to come together by molecules bumping into each other by chance, you know, it's just not going to happen. I mean, the probabilities are off the chart. And like I say, even the most ardent materialists recognize that that's not going to occur. And so in the early 1900s, you had um, O'Paran and Haldane who started proposing, hey, maybe there was some kind of pre-evolution, a chemical evolution, they called it, whereby the molecules could start to come together and do something interesting and then later on give way to Darwinian evolution. Those have really been merged, as I was mentioning earlier into the same concept now where we're just we're just hoping for a single self-replicating molecule once we get that we're going to turn it over to darwin and let him do the rest oh sure right well one thing that you mentioned that is very interesting is you talk about the rep rep project in your mm-hmm. in your uh, chapter in the book this is an open source venture seeking to create a self-replicating 3d printer this is kind of right. an interesting thing you talk about tell listeners a little bit about the conclusions that you're drawing from this printer issue yeah, this is an interesting one because it, it occasionally comes up even in the debates. I debated one person online who was saying, well, we, you know, we already have a self-replicating printer, so how far away can we be from other stuff, right? <laughs> so I had, had to point into a few facts. But yeah, there have been a few. And, and by the way, just for listeners, I love this technology. I love 3D printing. I'm not dogging on that at all. There's a lot of great work being done that can help us with prototyping and even manufacturing, and it's going to really revolutionize a lot of the things that we're doing in industry. But there are a couple of groups who have put out this idea that, hey, we've got a self-replicating uh, printer. But if you look at it, it's just, you know, we're not even in the ballpark. <laughs> it can replicate, uh, actually, I shouldn't even say that. It can print a few of the parts, which then have to be um, carefully examined by the user, cleaned up, assembled in the right way. But there are hundreds, probably thousands of parts that it can't replicate. <laughs> and furthermore, it can't construct itself. Yeah. And... If you're in a watery environment like the cell is, you can't have just a bunch of components lying around on a desk and hope everything's going to be fine. You have to protect those. They have to be enclosed. You're going to be subjected to other things in the environment that are going to cause interfering cross-reactions. All of this has to be worked out in a way that allows this entity to replicate. And so the cell does something ingenious. If you look at like a bacterium, it builds a copy of itself inside of itself, and then holes or cinches the middle of the cell together, it separates the components into two and cinches those together and eventually releases the separate copy. But that's all required. It's not optional. You have to do that if you're in a watery environment or everything gets bogged down with interfering reactions or things float off and get lost. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So why do they say that this is a self-replicating printer if indeed it isn't? Oh, yeah, no, this is, this is uh, I think partly it's uh, marketing hype. I think partly it's the fact that people really aren't thinking through things carefully. And ironically, by the way, one of the early uh, RepRap printers was called Darwin. Oh, um, funny. Of course, <laughs> of, course, of course, this was a carefully designed and carefully engineered machine that they, they referred to it as Darwin. Yeah, I think people just aren't thinking through the issues carefully. And so part of what I'm doing in that chapter, at least in that section, is to say, hey, come on, let's let's step back. 
let's look at what's really required here to get a self-replicating machine. And we're, we're not even in the ballpark. We're not even scratching the surface. Right. It's so interesting, too, because as you mentioned, it can't assemble itself. The same problem that we were discussing pertaining to the molecule. But, but also with the printer, you have man assembling it. So you still have, and I don't know what the current debates are along these lines, but you still have man as the pinnacle of creation. Man is the smartest human, you know, the smartest entity on earth that is able to make things like printers and do things in labs and that sort of thing. So ultimately, don't you have to go back to the the basic issue when you're talking about Darwinian evolutionary theory, which is how in the world did you go from molecules to something so complicated as man? Well, I think that's a, that's one way to take the approach. I would add to that, though, Janet, that even if you go there, you still don't end up with all of the faculties, and maybe that's what you're talking about, all the faculties that man possesses. I yeah. mean, it's one thing to say, like, you know, I've built some machine. It's quite another thing to say that this machine has consciousness and awareness and intelligence and True. ability to act. Uh, those are things that we just have no materialistic account for whatsoever in science. Yeah, that's a good point. Also, you've mentioned in your chapter that if you're talking about a super molecule that could self-replicate, it wouldn't be DNA or RNA, would it? Well, um, so hypothetically, the idea in the current research is that you could do something like this with RNA, and there's been a lot of work on that, but nobody's ever succeeded. My point is really not so much what type of molecule it is from a standpoint of chemistry, but the requirements from an engineering standpoint of what would be required to have a self-replicating entity. And the other thing that's really significant here, which, you know, as far as I know, nobody's talking about, is that even if you had, let's grant the miracle of a self-replicating molecule on the earlier, so what? Uh, as soon as it mutates, remember, this thing's got to go on and mutate and turn into something else, right? Yeah. As soon as it mutates, that process of self-replication, which you had so carefully stumbled upon, is not going to work anymore. You can't just willy-nilly make changes to the nucleotides in a polynucleotide and expect it to continue to function. And so this replication process that is really just assumed as kind of a given under evolutionary theory is a huge problem, not just at the origin of life, but throughout the evolutionary history. If I take an an animal that could, uh, you know, crawl and I want to make it fly... That's one thing, but I, even the self-replication part of that isn't going to work unless I re-engineer that for a flying creature. And so this, this idea that exists in evolutionary theory that, hey, once we get self-replication on the earlier, we can kind of check the box and we're done. No, no, no. You have to re-engineer or at least maintain, but in most cases, re-engineer that self-replication process every time you make a significant change to the organism. And this is a huge conceptual problem that's almost never discussed. Well, it would seem that even the scientists who buy into the Darwinian evolutionary theory would understand this, that they're, they're maybe not as close to a natural explanation for the origin of life as they would like to be. Is there some reality that is, is coming out of some of these scientific circles saying, mm, I don't really know if we're going to be able to do this? Yeah, I, d- I don't know that I would say there's a lot of reality coming out. I think there's a lot of reality coming out from outsiders. Yeah. You know, people who are both knowledgeable in chemistry. James Tour has been a great example of somebody who has had the courage to raise his hand and say, wait a minute, there's a lot of problems with what's being discussed in Origin of Life and the way that it's presented to the public and the confidence with which it's presented to the public. Um, you know, Origin of Life researchers are convinced. You have to understand that if I am absolutely convinced that there's a naturalistic explanation for life on Earth, no guidance, no intelligent intervention, no need for a creator, if I'm absolutely convinced of that, 
then something naturalistic has to be right. Yeah. Maybe I'm not quite, you know, maybe my lab isn't quite right. Maybe my buddy's lab over in the other university is right. But one of us is going to stumble upon the answer eventually. And so there's a real mentality that it doesn't matter whether my particular approach right now is, is working. We're just going to throw stuff at the wall. Yeah. And eventually... We're going to stumble upon it because it just has to be right. Oh, man. Well, the name of the book is Evolution and Intelligent Design. Eric Anderson with us. Great to talk to you, Eric. Thank you so much for your work and for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. All right. God bless you. Thanks for being here. This hour, Janet Meffer today has been brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to needy Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. That's 800 800- Yes, word. We'll see you next time.